Tired of the negative news and flashover substance? It's time for Today with Dr. Wendy. Dr. Wendy Patrick is a trial attorney, patriot, and PhD with a passion for people and a penchant for politics. Dr. Wendy brings you the headlines, streamlined news you can use. It's time to be informed, engaged, and entertained. Now, here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Today with Dr. Wendy. Well, we have had another wild week, and I'll tell you, everything from uh, temperatures improving to uh, springtime uh, looming, we are actually, you know, really finally moving into some warmer weather. Um, but I do have to say, you know, on the political front, there's a, a, a deadline coming in June, and that has to do with the Supreme Court being able to take its summer recess. And as you might imagine, you know, the cases are really ramping up, and courts are really ramping up their attempts to at least get something in front of the court, whether it's asking for a stay or an emergency uh, injunction or whatever it is. Everybody seems to be mat- uh, reaching out, trying to figure out what's going on. And, you know, when we look at some of the, the heady political issues uh, really facing our society today, we are constantly looking at civil rights and constitutional rights and federal versus state and all of that. Uh, to say that we actually have a very interesting guest for you, the first half that we're going to use to talk about some of this. Larry, who are we privileged to have on the line? Yes, Wendy, we've got an amazing guest. Uh, before retiring, Chief Ronald Vitello was Chief of the United States Border Patrol. He was also Deputy Commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection and actually Acting Director of the U.S. Immigration Customs Enforcement, which is known by many as ICE. Needless to say, Chief Vitello is an expert on immigration and what's going on at the U.S. southern border, and we're fortunate enough to have him with us tonight. So thank you for joining us uh, this evening, Chief Vitello. It's great to be with you tonight. Thanks for having me. Hey, Chief, you know, your agencies that you have been in charge of have been right front and center, right in the middle of many of the battles that have wound their way all the way up to the Supreme Court. And I do have to say congrats on being the head of three major federal agencies. I guess that's what happens when you are good at leadership. You're a great leader and, you know, you can kind of choose where you want to work. I think you're the only one that I know of that's actually done that with these three agencies. And I wonder for our listeners, it's a lot of acronyms. It means a lot of different things, um, but people interpret these differently. Can you briefly explain the difference between the three organizations that you led? Yeah, sure. I can do that. I appreciate the opportunity. So you may know, your audience must know that uh, DHS was created about 20 years ago, March uh, 1st, 2003, in response to the events on 9-11, the government decided it needed to do things differently as it related to national security and homeland security, specifically things around border security, immigration, uh, safeguarding our foreign travel and people that are entering the United States, et cetera. So big components inside of DHS is Customs and Border Protection, which it was the former, like the former authorities at our border. Um, and then ICE, which was also uh, Immigration and Customs Authority that was merged out of the U.S. Customs Service and the Immigration and Naturalization Service. Uh, the, the ICE component inside of DHS does Immigration and Customs Law Enforcement on the investigative side. And then their other big operation is uh, Enforcement and Removal Operations. So those are the people that manage cases 
of people who are in deportation court or have been ordered by a judge to be deported. They are the people who carry out that logistical mission uh, after the courts have decided. So um, a lot going on post 9-11, a lot going on in the previous administration as it related to the enthusiasm for border security uh, and better enforcement and better immigration integrity. Um, and then now, um, you know, there's there's a lot of challenges as it relates to what's going on at our border and, you know, frankly, the leadership of the department. Right. Chief Vitello, we probably have seen this in the news probably every night, if not on the TV news, then in the social media news. What's the current status of our southwest border? Well, we're we're in the middle of the worst surge on the southwest border than we've ever seen. Um, I was at the border a couple of weeks ago. Um, they're experiencing encounters. That's Those are the people that have been taken into custody, about 5,600 people per 24 hours. And what that does is it overwhelms the systems at the border. Uh, you know, you think about, you know, a border patrol station with many agents. Uh, their primary role is to protect us by patrolling the border and encountering people that come across the border. But when they have hundreds and hundreds of people in lo- in custody all at the same time, um, then that draws people away from the patrol function, that draws people away from being able to make seizures and rescue people and rescue people from human traffickers. And so the system's overwhelmed. And then you think about just the logistics of thousands of people every day that have to be put into the system. And that doesn't account for the encounters that they don't make, right? So lots of people come to the border and are never seen by law enforcement. And then the, the government itself over the last two years is reporting about 1.4 million what the what the border patrol calls known gotaways. Those are people who were seen crossing the border illegally, but were not encountered by law enforcement. Wow. So, a, a huge level of activity, and you know it's important to note that that's that activity, that illegal activity, the drug smuggling, the human trafficking. It does not stay at the border. Um, those people are in transit to somewhere else in the United States from all over the world, and so the risks belong to the people who live at the border, obviously the men and women who are doing the enforcement, but that risk also transcends the border into every community in the United States. We see the level of death and destruction this fentanyl is causing all over our country um, and the, the reports of human trafficking and some of the fines that law enforcement sees. Uh, we're, we're, it's not a great thing at the border, but it's also important to know it's affecting all of us. It's affecting the entire homeland. You know, that's such a great point you make, Chief, because some people think that it does just it's it somehow crime stays at the border. And, you know, it's more than, than crime and fentanyl and, and, you know, some of the other um, issues that are, are often discussed. You know, we worry so much that these people are being exploited that are trying to come over here that maybe you honestly think they have family members to stay with only to find out that actually they've been part of a like you say, a trafficking operation or, or a smuggling operation. I mean, what are we doing? And I know it's a matter of staffing sometimes because I know Border Patrol is overwhelmed. What can we do, if there is an easy answer to this, to make sure that the people that are coming across the border, that they themselves are protected and not victimized by maybe others that are coming over or are already here waiting to exploit vulnerability? Yeah, it's, it's an important point. So the, you know, there's reporting most recently in the New York Times about the number of children who have come to the United States all by themselves, been released yes. to qualified sponsors in the United States, and then were found in, you know, basically in, in child labor exploitation, uh, in, in, 
in factories and, and locations where young people should not be working. They should be in school all day long um, and not you know, working in some factory floor. And so, yeah, they are subject to being exploited, including by those who sponsor them from taking them out of the custody of the government. So it's been a problem for a long time as it relates to unaccompanied minors. People have been choosing to send their children alone into the United States for quite a few years, since 2014 was when the when this really kind of started and got put on the headlines, became a real problem for the department. But it has continued, and it's important to know that, you know, you know, 90% of the people who are coming here are coming here for a good life. But the risks that they take in that pipeline, being exploited by smugglers, being exploited by corrupt government and government officials, uh, and then being housed in overcrowded stash houses along the border, uh, being packed into vehicles at an unsafe amount and then running from law enforcement authorities at high speed. There, there's a lot of misery being handed out to even the people who are in the pipeline who are essentially, you know, mostly looking for a better life, but they're being exploited in every part of that journey. And then many of them will continue to be because the fees for smuggling are quite high. The criminal organizations have been able to profit off of this misery. And so everybody that comes through the border, you know, that crosses the border at the line, uh, is beholden to the cartels, either the smugglers that they're paying or they themselves have to pay the cartels. Uh, Chief, I understand a human tidal wave is waiting for our border to open on May 11th because Title 42 is basically going away. And the current administration, it's my understanding, has no plan to really stop it. Is that true? Well, it's true they've not had a plan for any of the surges we've seen so far. Um, you know, the, the best advice that you can see that has been given to agents on the ground is to do their job faster. Well, like I said before, there are real limitations. You know, how many computer screens can you have to process people in? How much floor space and detention area do, can you have in the short term to get people through the system? Um, and when you release, you know, a third or more of the people who come to the border illegally, when you release them into the United States, um, you're going to encourage more people to do it. So Title 42 from its inception during the pandemic was authority handed by Health and Human Services, delegated over to the Department of Homeland Security, specifically the Border Patrol and CBP, to allow CBP officers and Border Patrol agents to quickly expel people who crossed the Mexican border illegally to keep us safe from the pandemic, not knowing their vaccination status, not wanting to do a medical workup, not having the capacity to do all those things, simply putting them back into Mexico um, allowed for the agents to be on task patrolling the border longer because expelling someone under Title 42 might take up to an hour, depending on the logistics of travel. Um, but putting them into the system for an asylum hearing or an immigration hearing takes a lot longer. It takes several hours. And so we know that there are people who do not want to get sent back, do not want to be sent back. And so they're waiting for the end of Title 42, which will be the restriction. CBP will not have the authority to expel people quickly. And yeah. so everybody that comes will we are at the end of the show i want to thank you so much for joining us and i'm sure our listeners had a really great lesson on on some of the logistics going on down at the border thank you so much for, for what you're doing and thank you to our listeners don't go anywhere don't touch that dial we're going to take just a quick break and we will be back for more of today with dr wendy headlines with the silver lining we will be back in a flash
News cycle lowlights have no place here. You're listening to the headline highlights on Today with Dr. Wendy on The Answer San Diego. It's time for more news you can use. The headlines streamline. It's time for more Today with Dr. Wendy. Now here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick. Welcome back to another second half of Today with Dr. Wendy, where Larry and I had to really brainstorm as to what are we going to talk about. There's so much in the news this week. Do we talk about charges being dropped in the Alec Baldwin case? Do we talk about the the latest with the abortion pill that uh, wound its way up to the Supreme Court? Do we talk about, oh, I know, because it's Saturday, let's talk about the Christian Postal Worker case, also argued in the Supreme Court today about this past ruling that maybe makes it more difficult for employers to seek religious accommodations for employees that actually have legitimate concerns about working on a particular faith-based day. Um, so, Larry, what we're talking about is a Christian postal worker who took a job at the post office, perhaps, because they're not open on Sundays. Um, Amazon changed that by now having deliveries on Sundays. And then was put in the untenable position of having to choose, really, between, you know, finances and faith, uh, wanting to keep the Sabbath holy on Sunday versus being afraid of losing his job, as ultimately ended up happening. Uh, actually, he ended up resigning, but really under duress. Larry, you know, what do you see as the really the main issues here? Because this may be about a Christian postal worker, but the ramifications of choosing between faith and finances, that touches a lot of people. Yeah, I think this could possibly overturn a the existing precedent, which is Trans World Airlines v. Hardison. I don't know if you remember the airline TWA. That's that's it. Trans, yeah, Trans World Airlines v. Hardison. And back then, and it's still precedent now, the court said that uh, employers are not required to make accommodations if they would impose even a minimal or what the court likes to call de minimis burden on the employer. So for basically any reason at all, the employer say, sorry, you got to come in on Sunday. Uh, sorry about your religion. Uh, it, it's, you know, just a minimal uh, burden would justify turning that employee down. And now they seek to change that. You know, what's interesting about this is when you look at the, you know, you're reevaluating a standard that was set by the court a long time ago. And, you know, obviously times change, things change. But are they trying to make the standard more in line with the, let's say, the ADA, okay, the disability or, you know, some of the other Title Seven? protections that we enjoy in this country. I mean, it's almost like changed circumstances might also uh, trigger a changed view of older law. Now, I, you know, I say that, you know, very mindful of the fact that Roe versus Wade was just overturned. So I understand that it can be very fact specific in what you're looking at. But when you're looking at accommodating a sincerely held religious belief, I mean, is it time to look at a, a standard that may have looked good at the time, but perhaps is a little bit different when um, something like the post office, which has traditionally never been open on Sunday, decides now to open on a day that was never envisioned by an employee who knew that he couldn't work on Sunday? Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Like Amazon changed the whole scenario, didn't right. it, with the exactly. Sunday delivery 
And uh, this gentleman that worked for the Postal Service, his name is Gerald Groff, and his lawyers are saying they want to change Title VII of the Civil Rights Law, I believe, of 1964, to where it says accommodation can be rejected only when there is a undue hardship on the employer instead of just a minimal, just a tiny little hardship. It's got to be pretty major for you to deny uh, our, our uh, person the ability to take the day off because of his religious uh, exemptions. And this is kind of interesting, Wendy. Um, I don't know if you're old enough to remember this. I, I am. <laughs> I, at least I heard about it. It's called a, they used to call them Sunday blue laws or Sunday laws. And way back when, this is the 1920s. It's really fan of really fun fact and it's i'll do it really fast in 1921 only california and oregon did not have sunday blue laws sunday blue laws said that all uh, commercial businesses had to be closed and that was both for religious purposes that you know the, the christian faith and for just like a day of rest it's just a good idea to have a day of rest but in the 1950s and 60s uh people the commercial uh businesses started to push back against that and by the 70s as Basically, they were gone. They used to be in in uh, 46 of the 48 states. They had these Sunday blue laws. So yeah, that's changed. But then kind of going to another a slightly different topic, uh, just think, trying to accommodate this. Okay, the Christians typically take off Sunday. The Jewish, our Jewish brothers and sisters take off, what is it, Friday night till Sunday uh, okay, evening. Sorry, yeah. And then, yeah. then even Islam, uh, they take off Friday prayer days. In some cultures, they take off half a day right after prayer and some Muslim cultures, they take off the full day. So trying to accommodate all those requests for days off, I can almost see the employer's point of view. What do you think, Wendy? Well, what's interesting about what you point out is the employer's point of view is also contingent on the cooperation and the team playing of the other employees. In this postal worker's case, nobody would pick up his shift. And he actually was able, they, they worked with him for a full two years before finally threatening him with termination and he was sanctioned and, and what have you. But think about a workplace where you actually do have uh, maybe a very cohesive team that is willing to pick up the slack. I mean, let's face it, there are some people that don't celebrate any religious day of the week. And why wouldn't they be available kind of to work out their schedules together so that everybody could kind of work and cover shifts as, as they wanted to? Now, you would have to find people that wanted to work Sundays. That would be the first issue. But then secondly, you know, Christians or any other faith, I mean, Christians shouldn't be forced to only decide to apply at Hobby Lobby or Chick-fil-A because they're both closed on Sundays. Yes. They should have a broader range of options available to them. So, too, should anybody of any other faith, as well as people that don't have any religious faith. So the real challenge, and I think this is why those Supreme Court justices get paid the big bucks. That's a joke for anybody that knows <laughs> that they really get paid. They should get paid far more than they do. But I think that's why they have to really think through these decisions and try to be consistent. And so this case really caught my attention, Larry, because for, for all of the right reasons, they actually took the time to listen, to think, um, and to try to find some common ground into reevaluating. And by the way, I thought it was, you know, I don't want to say bipartisan because they're not supposed to have partisan politics up there. But let's just say um, ideologically, they seemed more aligned than I would have thought when you look at the questions that they asked during the oral argument. Yeah, and it's really fun, too, uh, or interesting, that groups representing not only Christian denominations, but other religious faiths yes. have filed briefs uh, backing Groff's contentions, including the American Hindu Coalition, the American 
Sikh Coalition and the Council on American-Islamic Relations, also called CARE, have joined in this lawsuit. So I, I almost feel sorry for the Supreme Court justices. Can you imagine trying to balance all the equities involved in this case? Oh, and I'll, I'll even add one more. You know, one of the other equities is a lot of times we talk about undue hardship on an employer who has an employee that wants a particular day of the week off. But here, they necessarily also looked at hardship to the employer and co-workers. So, you know, it's, it's a little bit different. It's a different case than so many of the others, like, you know, the vaccine requirement cases where, you know, there, there wasn't necessarily this burden on co-workers argument in all of the cases. Remember, a lot of people teleworked. So there wasn't an issue of, well, you're not going to infect somebody that works in the central workplace when you're teleworking. Why, why does it matter if you're vaccinated? Now, we, we've, moved, uh, we've moved forward through a lot of those kinds of cases, but not without those issues remaining, where you do see the justices having to sort of take a broader look at what does it mean to say that you won't work on a particular day? Is it only going to be a burden on your employer, or is it also going to cause your fellow co-workers more of a drain on their shift. What was interesting also here, you know, you talk about justice as kind of picking up a little bit different roles. Um, one of the things that Justice Kagan said famously is, I'm so happy we're all kumbayaing together. It's basically illustrating what I had mentioned, that there actually was more common ground than I think people would have imagined. But then you saw Justice Brett Kavanaugh kind of going a little bit out of his lane, so to speak, and talking about how the court could change the standard without destabilizing the law. Now, I don't always think it's great when you have justices really looking to sort of broaden their their frame of reference. And, and everybody has a broad frame of reference. Remember, nobody ran. Uh, nobody, nobody went through that confirmation hearing saying, basically, look, this is my lane. I'm not stepping out of it. But if we're to look at the way in which they're actually working together and sort of espousing overlapping beliefs, at least if there are questions or any forecasting into the way they're going to rule, which you and I both know they are, um, it, it just really seemed like this might be a case that will benefit people of all religious faiths or people of no religious faith. It really sounds like they're headed towards a just decision working together here. And what's so funny, too, uh, I don't know why I keep on saying funny, it's interesting. What's so interesting, <laughs> interesting. is, uh, the, okay, those who don't believe, the federal court ruling in 2014 is the, the case of American Humanists versus United States uh, happened in October 2014, extended equal protection rights to atheists, declaring secular humanism or atheists to be a religion. And the 1961 U.S. Supreme Court ruling in Torcasco v. Watkins declared secular humanism, you could also substitute in their atheism, was declared to be a religion. So in a sense, even the atheists, what if they started to say, well, I, I'm not going to work on this day because it offends my secular humanism. You know, just a, and then you think of the Buddhists and all the other interesting people that you might know, have. You know, Larry, the, one of the few, one of the few uh, quote-unquote religions that has not yet been recognized is, wait for it, Seinfeld lovers, Festivus for the rest of us. That is not a religion. So that is probably not something that can be claimed to take off a day of the week. Anyway, trying to end with a little bit of levity and uh, always a silver lining. We want to thank you for joining us this Saturday night. Have a wonderful, safe, warm weekend. Please join us next week for more Today with Dr. Wendy. Headlines with the silver lining. Have a great week and God bless you.
Thank you for joining us for today with Dr. Wendy. You can learn more about Dr. Wendy and how to become a guest or sponsor of the show by visiting wendypatrickphd.com. That's wendypatrickphd.com. Tune in every week at this same time as Dr. Wendy will engage and inspire you with an upbeat viewpoint on the highlights of the day. This has been Today with Dr. Wendy on The Answer San Diego. 